All right. That was pretty good singing, congregation. I'm going to start, uh, you're welcome. I'm going to start asking more singing of you. So be ready. Starting a new series today. I'm really excited about this series. You're going to find out why soon. It is a series about the life of King David, and it'll take us through October. And we are creatively calling this series David. Right? Because you never have to worry about what it's about. And the story of David takes us back about 3,000 years, which is, that's an old story. It takes us back to the year 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Jesus. And even though I'm going to guess that, that most, if not all of us, have heard of David. Everybody heard of David? Yeah, David? Yeah, we've all heard of him, but an examination of his life is going to serve as a really amazing guide for us as we learn to live our lives for our Heavenly Father. So when we first meet David, we meet him as a boy. And then we're going to follow him throughout his life as he becomes king, as he rules over Israel, and then as he ultimately hands the kingdom of Israel off to his son, Solomon. So now, I want to start off this morning and start off this series by getting a full picture of David and his life, and I want to do that by sort of diving into the world in which David lived, because it's really important to understand the world in which David lived to understand who David was and why he did what he did. So to begin with, David lived in a very, very extremely violent world. Now, for us here in the West, in 2022, with our germ-phobic, hand-sanitized, fist-bumping, elbow-touching, mouth-washed, deodorized, social-distanced, virtual reality-driven sensibilities, it is really tough for us to understand just how different David's world was from ours. We, we do struggle with that as modern people. We struggle with putting ourselves back into those days to understand why people did things they did and why people were influenced the way they were influenced. Our world is, is sanitized and our world is sterilized and our world is, is distant and our world is disconnected. And, and even though we have war in our world, our version of warfare is far, far removed from the horrors of ancient warfare. And we've, we've seen depictions of ancient warfare on television and in the movies, right? I mean, the TV series Vikings gives us an interesting depiction of warfare, and the movies Gladiator and Braveheart, and there's so many others, but they come to mind. But we really can't fathom just how intimate and just how violent ancient warfare was. Ancient warfare was up close and personal. Ancient warfare was very literally hand-to-hand -hand fighting. When, when ancient warriors fought, they looked into their opponent's eyes, like directly into their opponent's eyes. And they were usually looking 
into their opponent's eyes from over a shield they were holding, a, a wooden shield or a, a metal shield. And when they were engaged in these battles, they were so close they could smell their opponents. They could smell their breath, and they could smell their body. It was, it was really, like, really intimate stuff. And, and as they pushed their knives and their swords into the bodies of their enemies, they felt the flesh tear. And this can get a little bit graphic, but I'll, I'll try not to go too bad. But they were so close, they, they felt the blows from their opponent's axes and from the, their maces and from their daggers and from their swords and lances and spears. I mean, this was right there. They could feel it when they were pushing the weapons in, when they were getting hit by the weapons. This was real stuff. They broke bones using their shields to fend off their opponent's attack. And they battled while they were covered in blood that was still the same temperature as it was when it came out of their opponent. So just think about this. They're covered in yuck, warm blood from their enemies' bodies, and they're also covered in their own blood that their enemies had drawn from them. And during these battles, they lost eyes and ears and fingers and toes and limbs. Yeah, ugh, is right. They received deep and painful wounds, many that would ultimately end up killing them, but they kept on fighting until somebody stopped standing. I and mean, that's what they did. They fought to the death. They smelled the stink of rotting flesh on the battlefield. They smelled the open bowels. There was copious amounts of blood, freshly drawn blood, stale blood, half-clotted blood. It was all over the ancient battlefield. Now, in modern warfare, we kill from a distance. We, we use robots. We have drones that fly thousands of miles away and drop bombs thousands of miles down. But in ancient warfare, that killing was frighteningly intimate. And, and when you're an ancient warrior, your physical build, your physical proportions mattered. Bigger and stronger meant more powerful and deadlier. In preparation for our summer vacation to Scandinavia, Beth and I watched the entire TV series Vikings from beginning to end, including Vikings Valhalla. By the way, I always have to do this. When I was just starting out as a pastor, I said something about a movie from the pulpit, and I got a lot of grief because people said, you shouldn't be recommending movies like that from the pulpit. So now I always give you a disclaimer. This is not a pastoral recommendation. Do not watch Vikings just because I mentioned it. Please do your own diligence. Everybody with me? Good, okay. You don't have to write me. Okay. But when we watch the show, we're kind of overwhelmed by the violence that the show depicted because those Vikings were fierce and deadly combatants. You know, their faith taught them that their days were numbered by their gods and so that no matter what they did during their lives, they were still going to die on the same day. So think about that. Whether you go into battle or not, you're going to die on the very same day. So they thought we may as well go into battle. We may as well fight. Now, when we were watching the show, Beth watched most of the battle scenes like that because it was really bloody. It was really gory. Anyway, on our way to Iceland, we ran into one of Iceland's most famous residents. He's the world's strongest man. He's a guy who goes by the name of Thor. His full name is Hafthor, but he goes by Thor Bjornsson. And Thor is a direct descendant of the Icelandic Vikings. And I want to show you a picture. I got a picture with him. That's me 
in the airport standing next to Thor. And just for reference, I'm six feet tall and I weigh about 200 pounds. He makes me look like a teenager. That guy is massive. And I'm thinking, if the Vikings looked anything like this guy, if they looked anything like their modern relative Thor Bjornsson, their battles must have been fierce. And I'm telling you all this to tell you that the ancient world was filled with violence and death. And I didn't even mention the deadly infections, the diseases, the ailments, the sicknesses. And I didn't even mention the fact that even after death, there was little break. It was very common for bodies to be left out in the heat and in the sun. They didn't get their bodies and bring them back and give them proper burial, none of that stuff. They just left them out in the rain and the elements to decompose in the worst way possible. Flies and worms and smell and stink. And I'm going to stop here. Okay, done. Gross enough for church. I'm not going to do this anymore. But I want you to have that mental picture. I want you to understand that it is not the way we live in the world. It's a very different world. But I want you to know all that in order to introduce you to our first David story, which is a story that I'm going to guess most of you are familiar with, and it is the story of David and Goliath. So... Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the story. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for a time of celebration and worship. Thank you for the people that you've drawn together, the body of Christ, the community of believers, the people who represent you here on earth, here in Boca Raton. God, as we begin to study the story of David, we would ask that you would use the things that we hear from your word, from the Bible. We would use the things that we learn about the story to transform us and to bring us closer to you. God, we thank you for this time. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please feel free to open to your Hebrew Bible, to your Old Testament. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So 1 Samuel 17, of course, the verses will be on the screen Again, this is the New International Version, if you're wondering what version I am using. So I'm going to read for you. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. So let's start off here by meeting the Philistines. Who were the Philistines? Well, the Philistines were a people who originated in Turkey and Greece, in that, kind of that region of the world. In the ancient world, they were referred to actually as sea people, S-E-A, the sea people, because they lived near the water. Ethnically, and this is really interesting, ethnically they were related to the Greeks. And interestingly, they actually had no connection whatsoever, not ethnically, not linguistically, not historically, with any Arabic peoples or Arabic nations. Not a one. The Philistines were, were essentially Greek. Around 1150 BC, so about 150 years before this story, they arrived in Canaan, or the region we now know of as the Levant. You've heard the word Levant before. You've heard that in the news. The Levant is what they call collectively the area of Israel, Syria, and Lebanon. Okay, That's when they got there. So they came from that region. 
Turkey and Greece, they're Turkish, Greece, Greek sort of ethnicity. Then they show up in the Middle East in about 1150 BC. The Philistines settled on the southern coastal plain of Canaan and established five capital cities. I'm going to tell you what they are. You'll forget them instantly, but I'm going to tell you the five capital cities were Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Ekron, and Gath. You'll hear some of these again. Now, the Philistines were a major threat to the people of Israel, who by the time the Philistines had got there, the, Israel, the Israelites had been there for 200 years already. Again, just to give you a picture, right? How old's America? Roughly uh, 250 years old, give or take, right? So they were all, they're almost as long as we've had a nation in America. They're there quite a while. And they arrived there during the later period of Judges, and they moved into the era of the Book of Kings. We're going to talk about that. But I'm going to continue to read the story. We go now to verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, we just talked about that, that's one of the major Philistine cities, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels and his shield bearer went ahead of him. All right, so what does all this mean? Because we don't know any of these measurements, right? Okay, here's what it means. Goliath was a huge warrior. He was anywhere between six feet tall, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and nine feet tall, according to what we call the Masoretic Text, which is a Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament that was distributed between 600 and 900 AD, so another ancient document. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, if you remember, the, the Jews during a period of time in the history, in, in our history, um, few hundred years before uh, Jesus was born, they spoke Greek, much like the Jews in America don't speak Hebrew or Yiddish, they speak English. So there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the 200s BC, and that places Goliath's height somewhere around six foot six. So he's somewhere between six feet tall and nine feet tall, all right? In any case, why is that relevant? It's relevant because the average Hebrew during that time was about five foot six. All right, so that made Goliath to them a giant. And this giant, this huge warrior, wore a helmet on his head that weighed 30 pounds. So now let's start thinking about this. The helmet weighed 30 pounds. And the, the shirt he was wearing, the coat of scale armor of bronze he was wearing, weighed 150 pounds. 30-pound helmet, 150-pound shirt, and he's carrying a spear with a 30-pound tip. All right? You tracking along with me here? 210 pounds worth of gear this giant's going into battle with. He was a killing machine. Given his height, he was actually able to stand behind the front line, for, so he was protected by the front line, but he could still see over the front line, and he could actually throw a spear or swing a sword from over the front line to kill the enemy. All right. Now you're getting the picture, so we continue on verse 8. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. So he's, he's trash talking, okay? And he says, why do, you why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? 
Ahus Saul. Saul is the king of Israel at this time. He was the first human king Israel ever had. We're going to talk about that in a second. Goliath continues, choose a man, pick somebody from among you, and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, we'll become your subjects. To think about this, there's a whole Philistine army, their one major hero, their champion, their soldier, stands up and goes, I'll take all of you on, all right? Send me your toughest guy. If I kill your toughest guy, I'll surrender my whole army to you. How about that? But if I overcome him and kill him, you have to become our servants and serve us, our subjects and serve us. All right, verse 10, then the Philistine, this is Goliath, said, this day I defy, I dare the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. All right, on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul, King Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. All right, now. You're beginning to see, I hope, the reason I started off with that graphic description of ancient warfare. Can you imagine how terrified they must have been? The terror that this taunting must have struck in the hearts of the Hebrew warriors? Who's going to face this guy? These guys are five foot six. Sorry, somewhere like that. Who's going to face this possibly nine foot tall giant? Well, interestingly, King Saul was probably the most likely candidate. <clears throat> because King Saul was no shrinking violet, as it were. Earlier on in 1 Samuel, we learned that Saul was actually a head taller than anyone else. And in those days, Saul was exactly what you would expect a king to look like. He was tall, he was strong, he was muscular, he was handsome. Israel needed a man who could defeat this kind of threat, and they thought it would be Saul. So they looked to King Saul to be their champion. It's here that this story begins to mesh with our story because we do something very similar, and here's what I mean by that. In times of trouble, we place our hope in the things or the people that we depend on. And when those things or people fail us, the level of disappointment that we feel or the level of anger that we feel or the level of, level of disdain that we feel matches the level of hope that we had placed on them in the first place. So if we put a lot of hope in them, we're really disappointed. If we put a lot of faith in them, we're really angry. As we talked about last week, when we talked about giving and our resources, wherever we place our trust, that's where our hope lies. That's the thing we depend upon, or the person we depend upon. And Saul was nowhere to be found. So they put their hope and trust in Saul, this big, powerful king warrior, and he was nowhere to be found. And as the battle raged on against the Philistines, the Israelites' hope began to wane, and eventually the Israelites' hope died completely. But actually, that was part of God's plan. See, it was never God's desire for the nation of Israel to have a human king. And this is going to be a little side rabbit trail, but I think you'll get something out of it. About 400 years before this time, God had established Israel as what we call a theocracy, a nation to be led only by God as the king. God set it up so that as the king, God would give the law, and then judges appointed by the people would would administer the law, would enact the law, keep the law going, enforce the law, and so on. But Israel just wasn't ready for that at that time. Because when they were held captive in Egypt, 
they'd become accustomed to living under a human king. The pharaoh was a human king. And as far as they were concerned, that's the way things are supposed to be done. You live in a nation, a nation has a human king. And after the period of judges, that's where we started, theocracy, God's the king, the judges administer the law. But after that period, the people of Israel decided they needed a human king too. So in the 11th century BC, they complained about it. To whom? To their leading authority at the time, a guy by the name of Samuel, who was the prophet. If you take a quick look at the scripture, you'll notice that's who the book is named after, okay? So they go to the prophet Samuel, and here's what happened. And this is all a few years before Goliath. When Samuel got old, he did what people did back then, is he appointed his sons then as Israel's judges. They would sort of take over for the judges that were there. But, but Samuel's sons were I can't candy coat it. They were dishonest punks. Okay, they really were. They were horrible. They were thoroughly corrupt. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and approached this elderly man, Samuel, who is now retired, and they said to him, here's what they said to him in 1 Samuel 8, 5. Samuel, you are old, and your sons are punks. Okay, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, just like all the other nations. All the other nations have a king. We want a king too. But here's what they forgot. And it's a theme that plays out throughout the Old Testament. And sadly, it's a theme that continues to play out in the community of Jesus' people today. God established the nation of Israel for a specific purpose. And it was a purpose that went way beyond Israel. See, more than a thousand years before this time, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. And to Abraham, here's what God said. This is back in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Verse 3, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. There's this one dusty guy from a place in Iraq called Ur, and God comes and says to him, your family is going to bless the entire world. Now that's a, that is a bold statement. But God had a very specific agenda for Israel. God wanted Israel to be unlike any other nation. God intended to use then Israel's success to cause the other nations of the world to notice and to ask, oh, wow, Israel, I see how successful you are. Who's your God? Not who's your king. Who's this God of yours? Who's this God of yours who protects your land and causes your crops to grow, who causes your babies to be born and gives your people long and productive lives? Who is your God? And through the nation of Israel, God would indeed one day bless the world. We know because we get to look at it in hindsight. We get to look back at it. Eventually, we know there would be a king, and not just any king, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, the Messiah. So that would happen. That's the promise and the prediction that's coming to us from Genesis 12. But now we're going to go back to Samuel. But, then, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And here's what the Lord said back to Samuel. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, They've, God's saying, they've rejected me as their king. God said to Samuel, I established Israel so that I would be their only king. But Sammy, they're rejecting not you, but me. So God told Samuel, go ahead. 
listen to them, but warn them. But listen to them. You're going to give them a king, but warn them what's going to happen. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. It's like Sam. Make sure you tell them that things aren't going to be the way they think they're going to be. Tell them that if you have a king, he's going to tax you, right? If you, if you have a human king, he's, he's going to take a part of your crops. He's going to take a part of your herds for himself. And not only that, he's going to send your sons to war. And he's going to take your daughters from you, and he's going to put them to work for him. And he's going to take all the best land for himself. Tell them they're not going to like having a human king. And also tell them that when they come to that realization and they finally cry out for me, I'm not going to help them out. Okay, so that's what God told Samuel. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Israel's stubbornness then sets the stage for the story of King David. King David would become Israel's second king, as we're going to see in this series. He would become Israel's greatest king as well. But David wasn't Israel's greatest king because he was perfect. David was Israel's greatest king because, as we'll see, there was something in him that was humble and that was reluctant, yet also something in him that was confident and commanding. See, unlike the average king in Israel or anywhere else, David loved God's law. That was very unique. It was very unique for a king to love God's law. Typically, kings didn't love the law. Kings typically loved to be the law. Typically, when the law conflicted with what the king wanted, the king changed the law, okay? If you know anything about your church history, think of the Church of England. That's a good example. King Henry VIII heard a law and said, you know what, I'm the king, I'll make my own law, I'll make my own church. But David allowed God's law to shape him and to mold him into a better man of God. I mean, David wrote songs to God. He wrote poems to God. He wrote prose to God. He wrote these things declaring his love for God. David knew that God had given his own law to his own nation, Israel. And David's conviction to that God gave David an astounding ability to rule as a just king and a fair king and a benevolent king. Throughout David's reign, even though he was imperfect, David never confused the identity of himself as king and the identity of Israel's true king, God. David never lost sight of where he stood in relation to his heavenly father, no matter how much success he had, how much power he obtained, how much popularity he had. You see, most people can't say the same thing. Because success is a snare, and it ensnares all of us. And just a little bit of success can cause us to start believing our own press clippings, as they say. People say nice things about us, and we go, yeah, it's true, because it's about me. Hmm, must be right. See, for us, even a small amount of success that we have in our lives, career success, fitness success, academic success, financial success, parenting success, small amount of success can make us all believe that as the kids say, do the kids still say this, we're all that in a bag of chips? We do believe that. It can lead us into believing that we sit on the throne of our own lives. And when that happens, we place our trust in ourselves because that's what we as people do. 
We place our trust in ourselves. We place our hope in ourselves because we're the ones we depend upon the most. King David, King David never, ever, ever made that mistake, which brings us back to the story of the Philistine giant. Because it's here that we can see the beginning of God's work in the life of a small, unassuming, 15-year-old shepherd boy. This is really cool. So now we go back to 1 Samuel 17. On hearing the Philistines' words, who were back in battle, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David, here's where we're introduced to our main character, David was the son of Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem, that sounds interesting, familiar to us, hmm? Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Saul was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into the war. But David, the youngest son, went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep. So he'd work with the sheep, and then he'd go to the battle lines, and he'd work with the sheep, and he'd go to the battle lines. David's older brothers were all old enough to be warriors, and they were old enough to be warriors, and they were fighting with King Saul against the Philistines. David's job was simply to tend his father's flock of sheep and then run lunch out to his brothers up at the front. That's what he did. He would bring them food. Hey, who got the tuna? You know, that's what he did. Then one day, Jesse said to David, take this roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. I, ta- I didn't make that up, right? Here, run this bread out to your brothers. See how your brothers are and, you know, bring back proof of life. You know, let me know how they're doing. Bring back some assurance from them. So when David arrived at the front, he found his brothers there and he asked him, how you guys doing? And then... As David was talking to his brothers, as he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. This is the first time David heard this. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, saw Goliath, they fled from him in great fear. I, I always envision this Monty Python scene. They go, run away! You're like, there's Goliath, right? But David, instead of being terrified, he was offended. And he starts asking around, who's this guy? David's from Brooklyn. Who's this guy? (laughs) And he's saying, is somebody going to take care of this guy? Someone going to get rid of this guy? Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what's going to be done? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David saw something that no one else was able to see in the midst of that battle. All the people in the battle could see was this heavily armed, heavily armored, battle-tested, giant man warrior. And David saw a thug who was defying God. And as David could also see, their trusty king was nowhere to be found. King Saul was nowhere. And David knew that he needed to step up. Word that someone was going to fight the giant eventually got back to King Saul. So Saul sent For David. But when David arrived, Saul Saul wasn't exactly enthusiastic. Here's what he says. You're not going to be able to go out and fight this Philistine. You're a boy. You're only a young man. That guy's been a warrior since the time he was little. But David pled his case. David told Saul that even though he was only a shepherd, he was a Navy SEAL shepherd. That's that's kind of what he told (laughs) 
He said, no, you know, you're just looking at me like I'm a shepherd, but let me tell you what I've done as a shepherd. I have protected the flock from every predator. I killed a lion. I killed a bear. (laughs) If I could kill a lion and a bear, with God's help, I'll get rid of that obnoxious Philistine warrior, too. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, like a lion or a bear, the dead lion or the dead bear, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. See, to David, David's looking, he's like, this is so obvious. Why is nobody else seeing this? The Philistine was defying the armies of the living God. Of course God would be with David as he took this giant down. See, whereas nobody else seemed to have a clue about their problem with the Philistines, David knew precisely what he had to do. And that was a trait, by the way, he would carry with him throughout his life. David was not perfect, not in any way as we'll see, but his faith never wavered. So convinced, Saul said to David, all right, go ahead. Well, what's the harm? Kill a little 15-year-old boy, the war goes on, nothing changes, right? Go ahead. May the Lord be with you. Now, as we know, David would later become king. And as king, David would write a lot And David's writings left us with an unprecedented glimpse into David's heart and into David's mind and into David's thoughts and into David's emotions. Later on, David would document the perspective that he had that allowed him to remain so focused and confident in his abilities. In in Psalm 25, David would write, I trust you. In, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Does this sound like a worship song? Because it is, right? Remember, the book of Psalms is God's songbook. So a lot of the worship songs we hear on modern radio come from the book of Psalms. David didn't trust in himself. He placed all his trust in the Lord. That was exactly the understanding that God wanted for all of his people. And David, who would become Israel's second and greatest king, was truly a man after God's own heart. You'll hear that a bit. And David's understanding, David's perspective, is the very same understanding and perspective that God wants all of us to maintain throughout our lives as well. David wrote in Psalm 25.3, No one who hopes in you, singing to God, will ever be put to shame. See, David one day would be a king like no other king. Unlike the kings that came before David and unlike the kings that would follow, David's leadership stood out because he didn't lead as kings are typically wont to lead. David didn't let his ego overshadow his God. David led by following the lead of God. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So that's David's heart. Now we're going back to our story. Having been cleared by King Saul to face the giant who was terrorizing the people of God, 15-year-old David, bold and confident, yet humble and submissive to God, began to prepare for battle. Now you may know the part, this part of the story. Initially, Saul offered his own armor to David, who was a novice, but of course that didn't work. Saul was this big man, over six feet tall, very muscular, very big. David's a small, slight, 15-year-old shepherd boy. So David grabbed his own shepherd's staff, his stick, and he grabbed a slingshot, 
and he picked up five rocks, five smooth stones that he would use as projectiles, and then he headed off to face the giant. This brings us to 1 Samuel 17, 41. He headed off to face the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him. Uh, he, the, I'm sorry. David headed off to face Philistine, and Goliath headed toward David with his shield bearer in front of him. And Goliath looked David over. So here's this big guy, and he's looking at this little boy, and he's going, okay, gave him, the, gave him the once over, saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and Goliath despised David. Okay? Goliath was not impressed with David. And I'm sure the other Philistines were not impressed with David. And quite frankly, it is tough to imagine that the Israelites were all that impressed with David either. Right? You've got to imagine, like, they're standing there, and they're afraid of Goliath, and they're terrified, and they're going, this little guy's going to go out and be our champion? Like, that's who we're depending upon? This child to keep us from becoming slaves to these Philistines? They're probably saying to each other, we should have learned to speak Philistine in high school, because this is going to be a problem. Undaunted, though, David draws near to the giant warrior. And he can, the warrior, Goliath, continues to trash talk. And then he ultimately threatens. Here's what Goliath says to David. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. That's why we talked about that in the beginning. That's what you did when you killed somebody. But David was undeterred, and here's what he called out. He said to Goliath, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, today, this is David trash-talking the giant. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army, I'm going to kill the whole army, to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. Get ahead of the story. All those gathered here will know, David said, that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And you know what? David did it. He killed the giant, and he took off the giant's head, and he took off the giant's head using the giant's own sword to add insult to injury. And everybody stopped laughing at that moment. Instead, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, what'd they do? Yikes, right? They dropped their swords and they ran. And the Israelites followed and they, they killed them all. They wiped them out and then they plundered their camp. They stole everything they had. David had done what King Saul failed to do because David saw something that King Saul couldn't see. With his hope placed firmly in the Lord, David could see clearly and act decisively, and yet still maintain his humility, still walk humbly, because he knew that the victory belonged not to him, but to God alone. So many things were out of David's control throughout this entire Philistine siege, but David was able to prevail because he was humbly able to turn to God for guidance and deliverance. You want to know something? We can do the same thing. We can do the very same thing. If we've committed our lives to God through our faith in God the Son, through our faith in Jesus, our Messiah, if we've gone to God and said to him, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. 
I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. So now I turn from those sins and I give you my heart and I give you my life and I want to trust you and I want to follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. When we can do that, then we can begin to learn what it means to have the kind of hope and the kind of trust that David had. We can have that in our lives as well. When we walk humbly with God, we can live every day knowing that, even though we don't know what the day holds, and even though we can't control everything that happens, we can still live with confidence, guided by the one who does know and the one who can control. If we live our lives completely trusting in and depending upon the God who has the whole world and everything that happens within it in his hands, we too can have the kind of hope and trust that David modeled. And we can take a step toward getting there by beginning every day with this prayer from David. I'm going to show you a prayer. We're going to read through it, and then we'll say it together. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. All right, you want to read it with me together? Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Now, this is a powerful prayer, and this powerful prayer will bring us right into the center of the story of David. And that's the story we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Whether there are things that we're facing that we're just not looking forward to, or challenges about which we're incredibly confident that we're excited to tackle, or things that stand before us that we're terrified of, if we can get into the practice of heading into all of them in the name of God and under the power of our Lord, there's no limit to the things we can accomplish. And there's no limit to the lives that we can impact in Jesus' name. And not only that, when things look bleak and we simply cannot see the wind from where we happen to be standing, if we can learn to put our trust in God and hope in him all day long, we'll be able to live our lives with confidence that our God will prevail in a way that blesses us and brings him glory. David was an imperfect man and an imperfect king, but throughout his life, he put his trust in the Lord. David's hope was in the Lord all day long. David was Israel's greatest king because as king, he never confused himself with the king. But like everyone, and like anyone, David had to get there. David had to develop the faith and trust and hope in the Lord that allowed him to rule so brilliantly years later. And next week, we're going to talk about that. And I hope you can come back and join us. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Father God, We thank you for this introduction to the world of David. We thank you for showing us a man after your own heart, for showing us a man 
who though totally imperfect, who even though he sinned frequently, was able to continue to maintain his faith and trust in you. So God, as we continue on through this series, we would ask that you would use the things you've given us to guide us and to lead us and to show us the way that we too can put all of our hope and trust in you. God, we thank you for this time. We ask for a blessing over our brothers and sisters on the west coast of Florida and up into the east coast in South Carolina. God, we ask for your comfort, your assistance for them. And God, we thank you for all that you've given us. We love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.